Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Let's begin with prayer this morning. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study. We ask that your spirit and your angels will join us today. We ask that our minds will be clear, that we can see you more, more fully, and that we can experience your love in our hearts. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Technical difficulty. We are doing lesson number four in our quarterly Loved and Loving John's Epistles. And the lesson title this week is Walking in the Light, Keeping His Commandments. Now, question for the class, first off with the title. The title of the lesson, Walking in the Light, Keeping His Commandments. If you were making the title to the lesson, what would you put after Walking in the Light? Walking in the Light, blank. And you get to fill it in. What would you put? If we're Walking in the Light... Would you put anything different than the quarterly put, keeping his commandments? Living his commandments. Living his commandments. Sharing. Sharing it. Sharing the light. Okay, what else? Oh, living the law of love. Yeah, walking in the light. Living the law of love. I like that. Um, Living a life of love. Yeah. Um, Loving others more than self. Is that walking in the light? Following the example of Jesus? Yes. That living in the light? About reflecting his glory. Reflecting his glory. I like that too. There's a lot of good things we could put in there. Um, in the memory text, it says, Now, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. What do you think is meant by his commandments? What do you think is actually meant by the one who wrote that in 1 John by his commandments? Everything you talk. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, right here. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. So the first thing that comes to mind is, is love, or is the first thing that comes to mind the ten? How do you think it's, it's, mo- it's most often heard? Thou shalt not. Well, you know, we're going to have a, a contrast between this idea of loving as the fulfillment of the commandments or the, the rules as the fulfillment of the commandments, because I think the lesson draws us that direction. But let's just read some text out of Scripture to kind of set the groundwork. Romans 13.10 says, Therefore love is fulfillment of the law. James 2.8 says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Okay, so love is fulfillment of the law. The royal law in Scripture is love your neighbor as yourself. And then 1 John 3.14, out of the same book we get the, the memory text, we know that we have passed from death to life because... Anybody know? We love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Do you think... The writer of 1 John, when he says that now by this we know we know him, that we know him if we keep his commandments, was talking about love. Do you think he was talking about that? I think so. Well, he also wrote a gospel called the Gospel of John. And in John 17, 3, we find his record of Jesus' prayer where Jesus says, This is life eternal that they might... Know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ and thou sent. So here we have in John 17, 3, knowing God is equal to eternal life. The text we read in 1 John 3, 4 says, we have passed from death to life when we do what? Love our brothers. And if we don't love, we remain in death. So with knowing God, knowing God is eternal life, loving our brothers is Passing from death to life, or is there a connection between knowing God and loving here? And loving others. Do you see the connection, everybody? Yeah. Then would keeping the commandments be synonymous with love? Because knowing God is keeping the commandments. Knowing God is life. Uh, life is loving. We pass from death to life when we love each other. Are you seeing the connections? Yeah. Well, what does love look like? This kind of love that we pass from, from death to life. Any, any thoughts on what it looks like? Turn to Matthew 25, and let's start in verse 31. And somebody read verse 31 through 33. Let's start with that first. Matthew 25, 31 through 33. When the Son of Man comes, as King, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His royal throne, and the people of all the nations will be gathered before Him. 
that he will divide them into two groups, just as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the righteous people at his right and the others at his left. What does this sound like to you that that's happening? Is this like judgment? Mm-hmm. What is determining how God separates these people? Well, we're going to get to that in a minute. We're going to get to that in a minute, the actual description of the sheep and the goats. But I guess the question is, when a shepherd, it says like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. What determines when the shepherd is making his separation, which goes on one side and which on the other? Is it so, Whether you're a sheep or a goat. I mean, isn't that what determines it? In other words, it's not something in the shepherd that's making this decision, is it? It's something in the nature of the beast that he's dealing with out in front of him that makes the decision on which side they go to. Notice this. If you're a goat, you go to one side. If you're a sheep, you go to the other side. In other words, when God sits to make this determination, what determines which side we go to is what's the condition of our heart. Have we been changed? Have we been renewed? Have we been reborn? Have we been regenerated? Are we like Christ? Or are we hardened to be like the enemy? And, and sadly, I think far too often, we, we look at it like a human judicial court, and we go in there hoping that the judge will find in our favor. Rather than saying, wait, have I opened my heart to let him heal me? That's the question we have to answer. All right, so we, so we go on now, if you read the, the text that follows, about what, is a sheep, what does a sheep look like, what does a goat look like, a sheep looks like those who have cared for the hungry, who have visited the sick, who have put clothes on the, those on the naked, who have visited those in prison. That's what a sheep looks like. And a goat looks like those who don't, don't care about anybody but themselves. And so, what does that come down to? Whether we love others, or whether we are selfish. That's the deal. And is that determined by God? Does God sit up in heaven and determine that you are a person who loves others and you are a person who, who only loves and cares for yourself? Or is that determined by the choices we make? Yeah. So then, what would you say is described in the text here by was this parable of Christ? What would you say he would say through this parable is the keeping of the commandments? How you treat others. How we treat others. What if they visit the sick? And what if they clothe the naked and visit people in prison and feed the hungry? And and from a heart of love for people, not because they want to get elected to some office, but they really love people, but they worship on a different day than you. What about that? Well, a lot of quietness all of a sudden. Well, think that one through as we go through the lesson today. Um, read the first two paragraphs of Sabbath's lesson, starting a pastor. A pastor having counseling, a husband and wife, the husband having had an extramarital affair. Now, that's not an extramarital affair, but in fact, many of them. The husband tried to calm the situation by telling the wife that although he didn't love women, it didn't mean that he didn't love her. In fact, he said he loved her more than any of the others. As can be expected, his words, far from solving the problem, have made it worse. Why? Because if you love someone, you show it by your actions, by your deeds, not just by what you say. Thoughts about those two paragraphs? Is there truth in those paragraphs? Yeah, there's absolutely truth in those paragraphs. I have patience, and I think you probably heard some of my stories, where husbands will be hitting their wives, and as they're hitting their wives, they tell their wives how much they love them, and they only do it because they love them. And I think we can see that the words and the behaviors are inconsistent. The behaviors speak louder than words, don't they? Yeah, and I think that's what the lesson is trying to point out here. Um, Let me ask you a question. Hypothetically, since this is a hypothetical here, um, if the wife had cheated on the husband first... Would then his going out and cheating be an act of love? Hmm. What if the husband had, had cheated first, like the, like the scenario says, and he's cheating and cheating and cheating. Um, if one night while he's resting in the bed, she comes in and shoots him and kills him, would that be an act of love? And you're laughing, but, but hell, here's, here's, the, here's the connector. If that's not an act of love because of a, of a cheating spouse and, a cheat, and the one who's been cheated on wouldn't show love by, by killing the cheater, 
why do we say God is going to kill all those who have betrayed him? I mean, don't we say God is love? And don't we say that we have been an adulterous people, an adulterous we have turned our backs on God, we have sinned and turned our hearts from him? And yet we say that when he loves us, if we don't turn back to him and be faithful, then he'll kill us. But a human that did that, we would say, well, that wouldn't be love at all. But God doesn't kill us for what we've done wrong. What does he kill us for? Rejecting Jesus Christ, his son's blood. Hmm. So, but does God actually kill us? No. We But in addition, He does kill us. He destroys all sin, wherever sin is, be it this earth, be it the sky, the elements, the people, wherever sin is, God finally destroys it because He wants one pulse harmony. So, so the question is: Is God the the source of death? No. Is He the executioner? Wages of sin is death. Or is death something that comes from an unremedied sinful heart? Unrepentant heart is where death comes from. An unrepentant heart was where death comes from, is what you said. I've heard some of you all say the same thing. Have you heard it taught, though, that God will be the one who has to kill? Yes. <laughs> then do you see that the, the breakdown here that if God is actually love, and, I, and we all know he is, love doesn't kill the one who spurns the love. That wouldn't be love at all. Try that on your spouse. Hey, I don't think you're loving me so much anymore. I'm going to beat you till you do. We don't get love that way. And think about that if you were a child. Your your father, you have three siblings. Four of you in the family. And one of the siblings in adolescence had some real problems. I don't know, let's say they started smoking marijuana, uh, running around, skipping school. And uh, and your father, after some attempts to to restore that child, um, you know, takes them out back to the woodshed, pulls out a gun, and shoots them. Will you come to love your father more? Well, what will happen in the universe if that's what happens to the wicked in the end? God takes a bunch of his children out to the woodshed and whacks them. What happens to the rest of the universe? You see a problem with this kind of idea. And this is commonly taught. We need to rethink that process. Sunday's lesson. It's talking about knowing the Lord. So the question is, what does it mean to know the Lord? She says to be friends with him. In Eden, Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and gave a son. David, when he was old and decrepit and couldn't even keep his own self warm in bed, they brought a hot water bottle to him. It was a probably a 17 or 18-year-old young lady with uh, quite warm metabolism. And she would crawl in bed with him at night uh, to keep him warm. But it says, he never knew her. Does that mean they weren't introduced? <laughs> what does this knowing mean? Intimate. Becoming one. We need to become intimate with God. Yeah. Does that mean more than just a cognitive awareness? Yeah. So what ways, what sources are available to us to come into that knowledge of God? What avenues, what pathways, what opportunities, what different approaches can we come to God and get to know Him? Prayer. Okay, prayer. Bible. Life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Okay, which would be revealed in the Scripture or inspired writings. Okay, so inspired writings, prayer, what else? Nature, his, his book of nature. Okay, what else? Fellowship. Fellowship with like believers and testimony of people that have come to know God and, and they're, you know, the lights to the world representing God to so other people. What else? Experience. Experience. So providential interventions and experience. Holy Spirit directly convicting your heart and mind. Divine revelation. Yeah. God has all types of ways to reach us. Are, are we open and seeing it? Are we looking for it? Do we walk around with eyes wide open? Somebody read the first two paragraphs for us in Sunday's beginning, the phrase. The phrase, by this we know, appears twice in the above passages. Just what is it, according to John, that Christians know? First, that we have come to know God, and second, that they are in Him. Considering what's at stake, our eternal life or our eternal destruction. These are important things to know. What do you think about the reasons given in the lesson for us to come to know God? What are the reasons? Our eternal life life 
or our eternal destruction is the reason this is important. What do you think about those as the reasons to get to know God? Yeah, those, so they're selfish reasons, fear-based reasons. What do you think about that? That's a good beginning. <laughs> good beginning. Other thoughts? The, the reasons you might uh, employ with dealing with a child versus uh, promise of reward. It, it is true our eternal destiny is at stake. Isn't that true? That is a true statement. Yeah. But, but it says in 1 John 2 that whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. You've all heard that. How did Jesus walk around? Was he walking around concerned with saving himself? No. Well, should we be walking around concerned with saving ourselves? How much of Christian gospel goes out there primarily with the message of, are you saved? Uh, where's your destiny? Are you going to burn in hell? I mean, how much of it focuses on self-preservation? Hmm. What happens to us when our motive for knowing God is to save self? Matthew 16.25, Jesus said, Forever wants to save his life will... But whoever loses his life for me will... Wait a minute. If, if I want to save my life, I'm going to lose it. So we should preach a gospel that's focused on all of us trying to save ourselves. Through Christ, of course. Wait a minute. Um, how would you feel if somebody wanted to marry you so that they could get U.S. citizenship and not get deported? <laughs> would that encourage your heart? Would you experience l- more love in a relationship like that? I want to marry you so I can have citizenship and not be sent out of this country. That's my reason. We want to go to Christ so we can have citizenship in heaven and not be deported to hell. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> that reason in itself is not bad. It's just not complete. It's okay for me to feel like I want to be in heaven and not to be in hell. I can't be condemned for what. But why do we want to be in heaven? Do we want to be in heaven? Because we love the person who heaven is all about and we want to be with him? Or do we want to be in heaven as a mean of, means of saving our own skin and once we're there we can take off and kind of ignore the one who got us there? Do our own thing. You see, you know, the, the person who marries a U.S. citizen to get U.S. citizenship and that's the only reason, once they get their citizenship, what often happens? Divorce, Divorce and whoop, off they go. But the point is, if that's the only reason why they're not going to be there anyway. How many are going to church each week, and that's their only reason for going. For the hope of reward or the fear of punishment is their reason for going. Is there a danger if that remains our only reason? Yeah, that's what I'm trying to point out here. Now, let's be, let's be clear. When we come to Christ, in the beginning, we always come from selfish motives. Why is that, why is that true? Because we're selfish. That's our carnal heart. We can't come to him from good motives to begin with. We always come from selfish motives. So let's just be fair. The starting point is we're concerned with ourselves. We always are concerned with self. That's where we come. But I'm suggesting, if we come to Christ from selfish motives and we get to know him, do we reasonably expect somewhere along the way those motives to change? And if those motives don't change, what does that mean? We don't really know him. We haven't really been converted. We haven't really been transformed, renewed. Remember Peter, three and a half years with Jesus, walked out, did many miracles, all the apostleship stuff that he did after three and a half years with Christ. And the night before Christ's crucifixion, he says to Peter, I'm praying for you because the devil wants to sift you. And Peter says, if everyone else betrays you, Lord, I won't. I'll stick with you all the way to death. Was Peter lying? Did Peter love Jesus? Well, then what happened the next day? Of course, Jesus said, Jesus said, before the cock crows, three times, when you're converted, feed my sheep. Notice, three and a half years, all the miracles, walking with Christ, Peter's not yet converted. Even though he was 
loving the Lord and making this declaration of commitment to the Lord, he's still not converted. He was depending on his own strength and his own righteousness to get him where he wanted to go instead of depending on Jesus and his power to heal him and to be what he needed to be. Well, I like that. Let's, let's take that and just dig that a little bit deeper. When he found himself denying Christ three times, after saying, I'd go all the way to death for you, after not lying, after really loving the Lord, why? What happened when, when he was faced with that situation? And here's the root. He loved Jesus, but he still loved himself more. And when push came to shove, and his life was on the line, he would sacrifice Christ to protect himself. After that experience, he went out and died to self, wept bitterly. And he would rather die than betray his Lord. He was converted after that experience. But before that conversion, he had fear in his heart too. And before that conversion, he had fear in his heart. Fear of what would happen to himself. Yes. But love replaced that fear after he was broken. Yes. It's important to note that he was stumbled after he was converted. Uh, Stumbled... With the hypocrisy with the, between the Gentiles and the Jews that Paul confronted him on. And you know, the Lord is still, conversion is not an end point. It's, it's, it's an ongoing process that the Holy Spirit, the Lord is still working on his heart. I appreciate you pointing that out. I think the interesting point about that was he wasn't denying his Lord at that point as he did at, at the denial uh, three times. But he hadn't yet matured in his understanding of what God's kingdom was all about. And so here we have an apostle, which on the hierarchy of, of prophetic gifts is a stage up of, over a prophet, who was making mistakes, and, who had to be corrected by another apostle, Paul, publicly, remember. And still may have come from that root of saving, saving self or afraid of what... People are thinking about self. They still have that selfish... Not wanting to offend the Jewish leadership and being ingratiated to their viewpoint. Right. Potentially, yeah. I think I think there's some insight in there. That's good. We can't fault Peter from the standpoint that there was an earlier conversion when Christ called and he left his business and followed Jesus. It was the depth of his maturity and conversion that was changed. But there was a conversion experience when he said, wow, this, this, is, this is something I need to do. And I'm going to I was just speaking Christ's words, quoting the scripture, what Christ said to him, when you're converted, feed my sheep. Paul said he had to die how often? Daily. Yeah, we have to die daily. Mm-hmm. Same for us. Yeah, daily, a daily abiding. That's true. So once we have this change that Peter had that we're, that we're supposed to have in our life, John fifteen thirteen it says, Greater love has no man than he laid down his life for a friend. This is how we know what love is. Christ gave his life for us. We ought to give our lives for each other. Something happens in us where we actually start caring more about others than we care about ourselves. And for those of you who are parents, where you can get the most powerful insight into this is how you feel about your kids. Isn't that true? But that type of that attitude where you'd rather lay yourself down to save your kids is supposed to be expanded to where we feel that way about all humanity. But if we don't feel that way, does that mean we're not really converted? I, I would say that means there's, that we are converted, but we're, there's work for the Holy Spirit to do to continue to heal us. Yes. And we should be asking every day, Lord, give me that kind of love in my heart. Free me from worrying about myself. And I tell you something I pray every day. There are some people that I've met that I pre- just sometimes really don't like. I mean, let's just be honest. But, um, but I pray. I say, Lord, I, I, I don't want that kind of a heart. I want to I really care about them. And so what helps me is sometimes there's some people in my family that I do love that have some problems and sometimes get under my skin and irritate me. And, uh, and I think about them. And, and even though I'm frustrated with them, I still love them. And I, and I think in a different attitude towards them. And, I, and so what I'll do is I will associate this person. I'm frustrated with that. Well, this person, just, they're struggling with some issues in their life. It's not about me personally. And, and it helps me transition to have more of a loving heart. Yes? Kind of seeing the face of Jesus in every person Kind of um, being like God is towards us. I mean, he must be frustrated with us all the time for all the stupid things we do, and yet he loves us. Yeah, and I, I uh, sometimes use the medical model with a parent whose child is very sick and emaciated with some devastating disease, and there, uh, and you know how disease can deform and make a person look unattractive physically. Yet, as the parent looks at that child, they don't see the disease; they see what the child would look like when the child's well. 
and, and, and their, and their passion is for, for, not for punishing the child who's sick, but to do everything they can to take away the disease to restore the child. Well, that's what sin does to our character. It warps us. It deforms us. It makes us ugly. It makes us, uh, but God looks past that and says, I, you know, this is a branch plucked from the fire. And he sees what he, we can look like when he has his way in our life and restores us back. And he sees the beauty that we can have again. And that's what he's longing to do in us. And I think that sometimes can help us look past the ugliness in, in someone else's life as well. Monday's lesson, the top dark section in Monday's lesson, it suggests that we look at several verses uh, in First John. And I want us to look at... Um, all of the verses except for the, the two verses in 1 John 3. We're going to come back to those at the end. And let's just run through them pretty quick. And I want you to answer the question, what do you think the lesson is wanting us to learn from pulling all of these verses out to have us focus on? And I'm going to read them to you. And you tell me, what do you think the lesson wants us to draw from this? And we'll go first to John 14, 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. John 14, 21. Whosoever has has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. John 15.10 If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. 1 John 5.3 This is love for God, to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. Revelation 12.17 Then the dragon was enraged in the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In Revelation 14.12 This calls for the patient endurance of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. What do you think the lesson is trying to get us to conclude from this series of texts? Behavioral modifications evidence of an the lesson is, is trying to get us to conclude that behavioral modification, keeping the rules, is evidence of love for Christ. Not only that, keeping the fourth rules well. And keeping the fourth rules well. And, and, and the question I have for you, in these texts, do you think the lesson is trying to point us to the Decalogue? Yes. yes. Rather than what we talked about earlier, the law of love. Now, interestingly enough, I'm going to read to you the two texts that I paused over for a moment, 1 John 3, 22 and 24. And you want to turn to your Bible, so we're going to read, read it as they suggested, 22 and 24, and then I'm going to ask you a question, why they left out 23. Here's 22 and 24. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. That's 22:24, And it just kind of supports that whole other litany. But notice the text they left out and tell me, what do you think it means they left this text out? Right between 22 and 24. It says, and this is his command. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. They left that out. (laughs) Why do you think they left that out? (laughs) From the one who wrote all of these other ones about obeying the commandments and obeying the commands. They have to add two more fundamental doctrines. <laughs> Do you think that he would have some insight as to what he's talking about when he says, what are the commands? And here's what he says. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. Do you think that's important for us to include in our study, at least? Hmm. And if you really love God, all these rule-keeping commands are not commands anymore. It just comes automatically. It's within you. It's a way of life. It's a way of life. It's not even a work to do. When you love your spouse, is it hard for you, when you haven't seen them all day, to walk in and give them a hug? Is that hard? Or do you go, okay, when you love somebody, you gotta, okay, got to give a hug today. <laughs> it's not hard, is it? It's easy. In fact, you want to. You can't hardly say, don't, you can't, I, I want, don't, don't get in my way, I'm about to hug my spouse. <laughs> yes. You asked us a question, why do you think they left it out? Yeah. But you didn't answer it yourself. What's your perception on it? <laughs> I think they want to focus us on the ten, and I, want, I think they want to focus us on behavior, and I think they want to focus us on keeping rules. And I think that's because they have a false system of, of theology in which um, they believe that the problem is broken rules, and the solution is getting the payment made for the rules that were broken, 
rather than the problem being a heart that's out of harmony with the law of love and needing the law of love, as it says in the New Covenant, I'll write my law in your hearts and minds, which regenerates us to Christ's likeness. And I think it's a, a distortion here. And then when that heart is, law is written on the heart and mind, it was said over here, then we actually do all those things that are in the Decalogue, but we don't do them because we're focused on the Decalogue. We do them because we actually have a heart that's in harmony with the Decalogue. Or to be saved. Or to be saved. Thank you. Yes, Kathy. What you just said is substantiated by the question that follows the text. How do they affirm us as Adventists in our position about the law? Yes. That's clearly referring to the Ten Commandments. Yeah, how do they affirm us? Well, let me tell you a story. When I was in active duty in the Army, stationed at Fort Stewart, Georgia, it's in a swamp, basically, in South Georgia, and it's a long way to anywhere. But they had chapels on base, and so every Sabbath, I would go to one of the military chapels where they had Seventh-day Adventist services there, and there's usually less than 30 people in attendance at the services. And there were no chaplains or pastors there, so it was always lay-led. And because there were so few, uh, most of the, everybody like me um, was not musically talented, and so we didn't have any musicians to play, but a local a Baptist lady who worked on bass volunteered every week to come and play the piano for us to, so we could sing. Every week she came and she participated in our Bible study time and she participated in the church time. And one week we happened to be doing in the lesson and uh, somebody else was, was teaching the lesson, um, Matthew chapter 5. And the section where Christ said, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Not one jot or tittle be passed away till all things are filled. You're familiar with the text in Matthew 5. And at that moment, the person teaching the lesson and several others turned to this Baptist woman who's been volunteering her time and begin to berate her for not obeying the Sabbath. Now, can you all see that happening? And I intervened with the text about the love is fulfillment of the law and the ones we've read earlier and about how her, her volunteer service to help us is demonstrating the law written on the heart and mind. And then I also mentioned how those who put Christ on the cross wanted him down by sunset so they could go home and keep the law. And I was asked not to come back anymore. Even though I was the ranking officer on base... And uh, there, and the people that were teaching were actually not even military personnel. They were just people who came from the local community to participate on the military service, which they were permitted to do. Um, when I was reading this, I looked at it as more of a control issue. If you have the rules to follow, when people break the rules, it's easier for people in control to say, well, they break the rules. Whereas it, it's a freedom issue of love. It's harder to control people when it's just an issue of love. Whereas you, you break these commandments, then you're not. Yeah, I think that's true, too. Look at Christ's day. He went around loving. He loved people on the Sabbath, routinely, often healing people on the Sabbath. And what did the leadership want to do with him? For healing people on the Sabbath. Why? You're breaking the ten. You're not keeping the commandments. Okay, yes. We started the Sabbath school lesson with to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and your neighbors, yourself. The first four commandments are loving God, and the last... That's right. And of course, it was said, um, the, the text, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and neighbor yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two. And that's what you're pointing out. That's exactly right. Yes. But can we do those behaviors without love in the heart? Yes. This is what Paul said in Romans. He says, you know, when the commandment came and he, and he specifies one of the ten, then he died. You remember which ten, one of the ten he actually specified? Number 10. Thou shalt not covet. Yeah. And, and, and the reason for that, the first nine are all behavioral. Think of them. You can behaviorally not worship any other God, not take his name in vain, um, not make any graven images, keep the Sabbath day, honor your mother and father, not murder, not lie, not, not steal, not commit adultery. But what behavior can you do to not covet? And that's what got Paul, because he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he, and he thought, prior to the reading, really understanding the tenth, Paul thought this is what righteousness looked like. When you look at your neighbor's wife, and you really lust after her deeply and powerfully, but you have enough willpower to say, no, that's righteousness. No. Righteousness is when it's never in your heart to even lust after her. That's righteousness. And that's truly God keeping the commandments. Right. That's right. On Friday's lesson, the first question on Friday's lesson was, it's one thing to keep the Ten Commandments, it's another thing to love other people. 
I don't think so. You are not keeping the commandments if you're not loving other people. Great point. Excellent point. You all agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, and that's what I was pointing out with my story. They thought they were keeping the commandments when they were mistreating this lady who's volunteering her time every week to come and minister to this group of people with her musical services. I know, it made me sick. Hopefully it made some of you sick, too. She did come back. Yeah, I, uh, she worked at the hospital, and I and I spoke with her and ministered grace to her and told her that you know the children haven't really grown up in the church yet. And, yes. Um, I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable assigning the uh, various reason to the author for uh, putting too much stress on the commandments. Um, I think probably we just try not to cover everything in one lesson. For example. As we go on down through the lessons, there's one lesson which is committed entirely to loving brothers and sisters. And in that, he does dwell upon, uh, and this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So it may be a little more of a problem of space and time as opposed to maybe... uh, Ignoring the aspect of loving brothers and sisters. I appreciate the balance there. And I really wasn't trying to to judge anyone's heart or motive. But it was strikingly um, interesting to me that they would quote 22 and 24 and leave 23. You'd have to purposely go around that text to put those two in and not put the other one in. Yeah. (laughs) So then what about the Sabbath? Does the Sabbath, which is the big hanging question, and I think the reason, frankly, all those texts were in there, were because the, 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 the authors and the leadership wants to hammer in the, the specialness that we deserve before God because we are loyal to the Sabbath day. And I think that is the reason that all those texts were there, because they want to make that demarcation that we are the only true commandment-keeping people on earth. What about the Jews? Yeah, but they don't accept Christ, so it doesn't count. <laughs> because remember it says the remnant are keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus which they don't accept that's what they would say Messianic Jews yeah Messianic Jews would be okay yes and actually the Seventh-day Adventist Church has a lot in common with Messianic Jews you ought to know that lots in common with Messianic Jews yeah so what do you think where does the Sabbath fit in any thoughts about that how do we approach it? I was in New Orleans recently doing a uh, weekend seminar, and the question came up about the Sabbath, and I was asking them, I was telling them about a friend of mine who, who was a pastor of a Methodist church who I visited one Sunday, and uh, his Sunday sermon was on the Sabbath. And I was quite interested with that. And he talked about, he quoted the Exodus passage about, uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. He talked about the, the, that the Sabbath is made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He talked about, I quoted the Isaiah text about the Sabbath is to be a delight and, and we are to enjoy the Sabbath day. He talked about in Bible times it was kept from sunset Friday to sunset Sabbath. And by tradition today and convention, the Sabbath institution is kept and it should be kept. He recommended from sunset Saturday to sunset Sunday. <laughs> and he mentioned about how the Sabbath was a memorial of creation. And he mentioned how it, uh, that Christians do it today to also memorialize our victory in Christ and what he achieved for us at the cross. Now, I asked these people, what would you say to this pastor? What blessing do you think we can achieve that we get that he doesn't get? that we get from worshiping on this day and honoring Sunset Friday to Sunset Saturday that he doesn't get. Yes? I think we both get the same exact blessing. Ellen Watts has a great controversy that it won't be taught. The very end was quite there. From the loud crown, the loud rain is poured out. So these people see the truth on the Sabbath. A lot of that does will fall out. A lot of those will come in. So don't beat the dead horse until it's time. It's my personal thought, you know, on that night. Okay. Other thoughts? Well, what was said to me in New Orleans was this. And I want you to think this one through, because I bet you've all heard this one. How would you feel if your wife celebrated your birthday on a day that wasn't your birthday? How many have heard that one? 
You never heard that one? And so, first off, number one, it happens all the time. Almost every year, we celebrate my birthday on a day that... How many of you have had your birthday celebrated because of people's schedule, work schedules, and all this stuff, on a day that wasn't your birthday? How many? Come on. All right? And were you offended by that, or did you appreciate their love and care for you and wanting to spend some time with you, even though it wasn't on your birthday? Okay? So, even if you take it at face value, it's like... Okay, yeah, that's cool. I mean, they wanted to spend time. I loved the fact that they wanted to be with me, and it worked out that we could do it. So I wasn't like, how dare you come on a day that wasn't my birthday? (laughs) Get my whip out and and, and lay out. But no. Um, So even if we take it at that value, but then the other thing that's much more subtle woven into that question, who are they focusing on the Sabbaths for in that question? In other words, the Sabbath now and our worship is somehow for God and he gets offended if we don't do it. But what did Jesus say? The Sabbath was made for? Wait a minute. See, the question about the birthday makes this something, it makes it a self-centered focus for God. Hey, we're, it's, his, it's his special day. And, and, and we're, not, we're not doing what he wants and, 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 and that's going to you know, upset him. Why does God say in the scripture, in the commandments, thou shalt have no other gods before me? Is it because he's powerful, he's the creator, he's the sovereign, it's his right, and if we don't, he'll be offended. He's a jealous God. He's a jealous God. He gets his sensibilities hurt. He needs us to worship him so he can be happy. This is what's often thought of and taught, yes. But the truth is, There is a law, in the scriptures it's called, by beholding we become changed. In psychology it's called modeling. We actually become like what we esteem, admire, and worship. And as the highest created beings on this planet, there is nothing we can worship on planet earth that will tend to our development, our growth, our our movement to the pinnacle, the highest pinnacles of development that God designed mankind to. To be only by worshiping the infinite one, can we actually advance and develop as God designed? So his, his message to us, have no other gods before me, it's not for his need, it's for our need. It's because we will never grow. If we worship things made with our own hands, imagine worshiping Heket. Heket was the frog god of Egypt, the god taken care of on the second plague of the, of the ten plagues. And you have a little gold idol of Heket in your home, and every night you and your family draw around that in the evening before bedtime, and you kneel down and you pray, Dear Lord Heket, God of the frogs, bless mommy and daddy and help me to grow up one day to be like you. (laughs) Is there a problem with this? That's an ancient thing. Today, actually, you can go to India, and you can visit a temple in India where they worship the rat. And in this temple today, right now, 2009, when you walk in this temple, you're not allowed to wear any shoes. You have to take your shoes off. It's infested with rats. They have a big bowl in the front that's filled with a liquid concoction of milk and honey. The rats are just hovering over the bowl, drinking out of it. And the worshippers will go up and they will bend down and drink out of the bowl with the rats. It's, it's, if you step on a rat and kill it, you have to pay the temple the weight of that rat in gold. So be careful where you step. If you're bitten by a rat, it's considered to be a great blessing. And I have pictures of inside this temple where there are little, there are kids, children, boys that are praying to the rats around the temple. Now, these people also believe in reincarnation. So here we have people created in the image of God with dignity and nobility of character have as their highest goal to die and come back as a rat. Do we see a problem with this? Why does God say to worship him? Because he doesn't want us to devolve and degrade and be destroyed. He wants us to grow to the highest elevation of development for never-ending eternity, always growing. Now, is there something similar to that in the Sabbath? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Is there something about the Sabbath that God designed for our good, our development, our well-being, our, our eternal good that... Somehow the devil has tricked us into exchanging for a rule. Imagine with, this, with the first commandment. Can you obey the first commandment and never actually have your mind develop? Yes. Yeah. Because you, by the way, 
Idolatry just isn't worshiping a piece of wood or stone. Idolatry is worshiping a God concept that isn't true to God's true character. You can worship a God that, that you call Jesus or Yahweh. But if his attributes are those of Satan, you're an idolater. You understand that, right? Everybody got me on this? Yeah. You'll still become like that God. You still become and assimilate those attributes into your heart. If you worship a punitive God, a punishing God, an arbitrary God, a vindictive God, a dictatorial God, you will, you will become like that God. Yes? Just so I'm understanding, are you suggesting that God doesn't care which day we worship on? It doesn't matter? I'm just trying to be understanding. Did I say that? <laughs> no. So thanks for the clarifying. No, I didn't say that. Does God care which God we worship? Yes. Why does he care, though? What I'm getting at is not does he care, but why does he care? See, there's one reason that says he cares, because he's sovereign, and if you don't, it upsets his, his, his and he gets righteously indignatious and wrathful, and it, and it hurts his sensibilities, which are so holy, he can't tolerate you worshiping something else, and he has to strike out. And the other version is, he doesn't want us to worship other gods, because it, it destroys us, and it destroys the kids he loves. So yes, he cares very much what God we worship, but there's two reasons why we can describe that, aren't there? Same thing with the Sabbath. He cares very much. But can we ascribe reasons to that? And can we actually come to obey the Sabbath law and destroy our souls? How about those who put Christ on the cross? And so for some people who recognize that Sunday is giving honor to a human institution... That would be violation of their conscience, and it would be harmful. Right, but there's a, there's a maturity. But does that mean everybody who worships on Sunday is having internal to themselves honoring of the Pope? No. So they're not necessarily being damaged by that historical truth. Right, so not everybody who worships on Sunday is honoring the Pope. Just like not everybody who talks about in the Sabbath lesson of obedience is necessarily sees God as a dictatorial and not everybody who worships on Sabbath is honoring God. Is that not right? Yeah. So, what was the purpose in God making the Sabbath? And notice, where was the Sabbath created? What was the condition of the earth or the condition of the nature of mankind when the Sabbath was created? Unfallen and sinless. The Sabbath was needed for mankind before mankind fell into sin. Think through that. Why? Why was the Sabbath needed for an unfallen Adam and Eve? Not for God. God didn't need it. Adam and Eve needed it. Why? Why was it continued to be needed? And why will it be needed through all eternity future when all is restored and sin is wiped out in the universe? Every Sabbath they will come and bow before the Lord, it says in Isaiah. All, not just humans, but the whole universe. Why will the Sabbath be needed for an eternity future? Because it's such a magnificent demonstration of God's character. It's such a magnificent demonstration of God's character. You see, on days one through six of creation week, what do we learn about God? He's powerful. What do we learn on day seven? Love and freedom. Love and freedom. He doesn't coerce his people, his creatures, with his power. He leaves us free. The Sabbath is about freedom. That's what it's about. It's invested. Why is it holy? What makes something holy? The presence of God makes things holy. The bush was holy when Moses was there. Why? Because God's presence was there. What makes the Sabbath holy? Because the Sabbath itself, at its inception, in Eden, when it was created, in the context of this controversy between good and evil, this war was already raging in the universe, God invested the Sabbath with his attributes. He presented the truth in love, and then set his creation free. And the Sabbath was a day to come apart, stop self-focused endeavors of what we're going to do to promote ourselves, and think and reflect, what do we know about our Father? What do we know about God? It's a time for freedom, not coercion. It was made even more powerful by immediately what it followed, because God made an incredible world and made people perfectly with unlimited capacity. I mean, we think in our fallen state, we think of the three attributes of God, omnipresent, omnipresent, all of those. 
I mean, we're virtually in our very fallen state, omnipresent. Pick up a cell phone. You're present with somebody anywhere in the world. He did not limit our capacity to develop all of those things like him. He said, you dominate, you be God, you rule over. He did all of these things, and then he stepped back, and he didn't say that you do it this way, 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 you do it under these restrictions and rules. He gave us unlimited capacity to be like him, and then said, go for it. Beautiful, beautiful. And the Sabbath is invested with all that. When we really appreciate the Sabbath, we appreciate the great controversy. We appreciate the setting. We appreciate the war that was begun in heaven over the trustworthiness of God himself. All of that is brought home when we appreciate the setting of the Sabbath. Satan wants us to miss that. And so he can get us to miss it in a couple of ways. By moving us away from the historical setting of the great controversy, which is brought forth in the creation of this week and the Sabbath and all those things, and move us towards simply the cross of Christ, which I say simply because they make it into a legal payment model, rather than the completion of the plan of salvation we will talk about later. But anyway, uh, but they, they make it into this payment model, and that's what Sunday becomes. And or, he takes the Sabbath for those who worship the Sabbath, and turns it into the most restrictive day, lack of freedom, most enslaved day where you can't do anything, most burdensome day of the whole week that you dread for the rest of your life having to come each week when it was supposed to be the day of greatest freedom. What does it mean to be a Sabbath observer? And here's the real root. And here's where it comes down to the whole papal system. Here's the real root to it. Sabbath is about truth presented in love, leaving people free. That's what it's about. Those who have the law written in the heart live that life where they present truth in love and they respect the free conscience of other people to come to their own conclusions. The beast system represented in that Sunday is a system that says no one can buy or sell save those who have the mark of the beast. It is a coercive system. It's a system that uses power over. It doesn't leave people free. It will force, pressure, coerce you to do. And the real root to these two days are not just simply in which 24-hour cycle they occur in the weekly cycle. It is the methodologies that they represent. And when you have the Sabbath written on the heart, the law of God, the law of love that we've talked about, you love other people and you would rather die than use pressure to coerce them to conform to your belief system. But when you have the other system in your heart, you will use power to coerce them to your way of doing things. And you will have the mark of the beast, even if you're coercing them with legislative power and threat of of prison to worship on Saturday. Do you all hear that? If we could gain control of the government of the United States and pass laws that everyone must shut their business and go to church each Saturday on the threat of imprisonment and death, we would be receiving the mark of the beast. Because it is not God's methods. God's methods are truth, presented in love, leaving people free. Only under Satan's government is their coercive pressure brought to bear. Because love can only exist in an atmosphere of freedom. And that is what is the Sabbath is all about. It is a day of genuine freedom. And it is to be a day that was made for man for our rejoicing in our Father in Heaven to come to know Him and to experience the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. It is not to be a day of burdens that enslaves us. I guess we we ought to close. Our, Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You so much that You are a God of true love a God of true freedom that presents the truth to your intelligent creatures. You don't coerce us. You don't pressure us. You don't threaten us. You love us so much that you came and sacrificed yourself to reach us and bring us home. Break through the darkness and the distortions in our mind. Hold back evil forces that would obstruct the light shining from your throne. Transform our hearts with your spirit to love you and love others more. And let us go out to to spread this good news about who you are, to free free the world that we can see you coming. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.